Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Really fun uh, doubleheader for you today. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the way people make things, uh, both from an introspective standpoint and also a practical business standpoint. Uh, we start off with Maria Cabardo. Maria is a documentarian and the uh, filmmaker behind Better Things, The Life and Choices of Jeffrey Catherine Jones. Jones's story is incredible. Uh, as a man, Jeff Jones was part of the studio, the Artists Collective featuring Barry Windsor Smith, Michael Kaluta, Bernie Wrightson, and of course, Jeffrey Jones. Later in his life, Jeffrey transgendered and became Jeffrey Catherine Jones. An amazing life story. Uh, we'll get into it a bit as uh, we get closer to the interview. That's part one of Word Balloon. Part two of Word Balloon features Greg Pock, and uh, Greg is going to talk to you about uh, a new Kickstarter campaign he has uh, for an ebook about practical advice on running Kickstarter campaigns. It's called Kickstarter Secrets, and uh, this is a mini audiobook version of the book to kind of give you an idea of what it's about. But it itself has some good hard advice and things to consider before you start your Kickstarter campaign. And uh, this is all Greg doing the talking. It's uh, going to be a fun segment, and I'll tell you more about that when we hit part two. This is all coming to you from Word Balloon, and it's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your weekly support, or I should say monthly support through Patreon. Uh, if you uh, feel like subscribing to Word Balloon, you don't have to. Word Balloon's free. It'll always be free. But uh, if you want to help the cause out, um, you can subscribe via Patreon. Uh, if you go to my site, wordballoon.com, and click on the Patreon uh, ad there, uh, it will take you to uh, the page and a video of me explaining uh, why I'm asking for uh, money to help me out with Word Balloon. And uh, thank you very much, because it does make it easier to get to conventions, to make connections with people like Greg Pock and Maria. Uh, and that's happened because I've gone to uh, conventions and got to know them. And uh, they tell me about their projects, and then uh, I convince them to come on Word Balloon, and we end up having some entertaining conversations. So uh, thank you very much for your support. Also, uh, Word Balloon is uh, sponsored today by Amazon.com. We're an Amazon associate, and if you go to WordBalloon.com and feel like buying something from Amazon, uh, if you would, a great way to help out Word Balloon is enter Amazon through the Word Balloon portal. And all you have to do is you go to WordBalloon.com, click on the link. It will take you to some feature products I have through Amazon. But uh, then also you'll be shopping through my portal. And um, if you buy anything through Amazon, it doesn't matter what you buy, graphic novels, clothes, uh, book CDs, anything, movies, uh, you know, whatever, any purchases made through the WordBalloon portal, um, I get a couple cents on the dollar. And that's great. And it's a really nice way to support Word Balloon just by no your normal shopping through Amazon. So if you think of it now or even in the, in the near future or something, uh, go through WordBalloon.com's portal and make your purchases, and you're helping Word Balloon out financially as well. doesn't cost any bit more. All it is is uh, you know, Amazon saying thank you, Word Balloon, for uh, bringing them a customer that's uh, buying some stuff from them. So it's a, it's a really great way to help out. In fact, you could buy Better Things, The Life and Choices of Jeffrey Catherine Jones, which, of course, is uh, Maria Cabardo's film, uh, and which is about to be the subject that we uh, start off with on uh, today's Word Balloon. Now, if you don't know about uh, Jeffrey Jones, uh, let me uh, refer to his Wikipedia page and give you a little bit of a uh, primer. Uh, he was an American artist. He passed away. Actually, it's going to be the fifth anniversary of uh, Catherine's death, uh, May nineteenth, two 2011. Uh, Jeffrey Jones was an American artist whose work is best known from the late 60s through the 2000s, 
Uh, Jones provided over 150 covers for many different types of books through 1976, as well as venturing into fine art during and after this time. Uh, Frank Frazetta, while both were alive, called Jeffrey Jones the greatest living painter. Um, Jeffrey was married to Louise Alexander, who became Louise Jones, later married Walter Simonson, and you might know her best as Louise Simonson, the co-creator of X Factor and, uh, you know, a wonderful writer and editor. Uh, She and Jeff met in college, and uh, when Jeffrey started his career uh, drawing professionally, uh, Louise Wheezy was uh, one of the editors at Warren Publishing and got Jeff a lot of his uh, early gigs. His first comic book work was in Blazing Combat, uh, 1965, in October from Warren. He later did things for Creepy and Eerie. He did uh, a great series that's very well known called Idol for National Lampoon. Uh, he also, again, was part of the studio with Bernie Wrightson, Barry Windsor Smith, and Michael Kaluta. Uh, Dragon's Dream produced a volume of their work in 1979. And really, when you think of like the image creators and, and you know starting image comics, uh, a precursor to that was the studio. And it was very infamous in a great way of these excellent illustrators getting together and really starting to do their own work for their own reasons. And, uh, you know, really a lot of uh, publishers would take their finished work and build stories around the covers. Pretty amazing stuff. So, uh, also, later in his life, uh, Jeffrey has a very interesting personal story, um, ultimately decided he really was a woman inside, and transgendered late in his life and became Jeffrey Catherine Jones. Um, I hope it doesn't offend anyone, because there are times in the conversation between Maria Cabardo and myself, we refer to Jeff as he in the past tense, and sometimes we correct ourselves. It's not that we're trying to offend anyone, and we hope that no one takes offense. Uh, Jeffrey Catherine Jones referred to herself as Jeff, uh, when talking to Maria. And Maria sometimes does refer to him mostly as, or herself, mostly as Jeff. So, uh, you know, just wanted to get that out there because I know that, uh, you know, it's it's a learning time for all of us. And I, and I really think this film illustrates that and, and really does explain uh, Jones's own personal difficulties in uh, accepting the person that he is or was and became, uh, and uh, also how uh, Jones expressed uh, herself through her art. It's it's a really amazing story. There are great interviews with Mike Kaluta and Bernie Wrightson. Louis Simonson is in the film. Mike Mignola is in the film. Mobius is in the film. Kent Williams. Uh, wow, Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, so many great artists. Paul Pope. Uh, all talking about the influence that uh, the work of Jeffrey Jones had on their own careers and their own art choices it's really great and i I can't recommend it enough um you can get the film through maria's site macabfilms.com you can also order it through amazon again it's called better things the life and choices of jeffrey Catherine jones we'll mention that probably a lot during the uh the interview but i really hope you enjoy this conversation with maria cabardo about her excellent film i present it to you now on word balloon i am very pleased to have documentarian Maria Paz Cabardo on the phone. Uh, Maria, it's it's great to talk to you. We met two years ago, and I and you uh, Gary Gianni introduced us, and I could not believe the subject of your film. And I just got to tell you how much I enjoyed it. And finally, it took us two years, but finally we're talking about this excellent documentary about Jeffrey Catherine Jones. And it's a pleasure to have you on Word Balloon. Thank you for coming on. 
Well, thanks, John, for inviting me into your show. And even though it's two years after we've met, better late than never, right, I would say. And a lot of things have happened for you and the film since. We're going to talk about that. But um, you're in a unique position. I, I, uh, I want to let the people know that beyond being a documentarian and uh, that you, you know, you're, you're definitely of the geek culture. You were telling me that you used to work for role-playing game uh, companies, right? Yes, I, I, I worked for role-playing game companies, and that's actually where I started. Um, I started at Mayfair Games in Chicago, Illinois, by Niles. Um, mm-hmm. And I was working on, like, um, D&D games, that, that type of stuff, like uh, the DC Comics role-playing games. I, I worked on that. We also did board what, games and all that other what stuff. What did you do for them? I was an art director for them, so I was in charge of wow. the art department, yeah. Okay, and were you, I mean, I, I know some comic uh, and fantasy, obviously artists will not only do comic books, but obviously they do do role-playing games. So, uh, like I said, Gary Gianni introduced us. Who were some of the artists that uh, you, you directed back then? Um, I've worked with um, Simon Bisley, um, Ian Miller. Um, I've worked with, um, let's see, a lot, a lot of the guys who are now um, pretty much almost, Legends in their own right, like uh, Dave McKean. I've worked with Dave McKean. Sure. Um, yes, I've also I worked with the comic book guys, and I also worked with illustrators, like uh, Dave Dorman. Uh, I worked hmm. with Brom. Uh, yes, Phil Hale, Dave. Uh, Phil Hale, Rick Barry. Um, I worked with Frank Rosetta when I was at Wizards of the Coast. Wow. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was he was really nice. He did everything I asked I him to do. So I was very. That's <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Wow. No, I'm really impressed. And the great thing is, uh, for this documentary, you, you reached out to so many comic book legends uh, to speak about it, contemporaries of, of Jeffrey's, uh, but also a lot of people inspired by him. But let's, let's get back to the very beginning. What led you to want to tell this story about Jeffrey Catherine Jones? Um, well, it started with me trying to do other things, you know, besides design and publishing. I've always done that, and I went to uh, the New York Film Academy and started taking a filmmaking class. And um, after that, I, you know, film is such a big uh, project to to undertake, you know, because it requires a lot of people, it takes a lot of time, a lot of money. So after I finished my course, I wanted to make a film, and I figured a documentary might have been an easier uh, thing to start with, which I was point to, I was told by my crew uh, when we started was like not the right, you know. He, they were teasing me, saying you thought it was easy. It's actually very hard. They said. <laughs> so yeah. So and, and as a documentarian, I think it's easier if you work on something that you're very familiar with or that that you already have a passion for or sure. some background and. I, I thought in the, immediately that I would do something about artists or art uh, in my field, which it could be anything. It could be in the role-playing field or the comic book field or the computer gaming field. So um, I have worked with pretty much most of the um, popular artists back then. Um, and I, I've always wanted to work with Jeff Jones. Um, and also, I just want to make it clear to people that I am calling Jeff Jeffrey Catherine Jones, Jeff, because he asked me to call him Jeff, and I'm used to calling him Jeff. I mean, 
and this was after his transition, you know. So I I know some people would probably be wondering why I call him Jeff, and with no other reason than that that's what he asked me to call him. So, um, so, so yeah, so Jeff was the um, only painter that I've seen, uh, artist that I, I wanted to work with that I didn't know or I don't, you know, I don't see him in conventions. I don't see him right. anywhere. So I decided to sort of like do research on him. And I decided after hearing all these stories from people about him that he was a very interesting person. So I asked a friend, Robert Wiener, to introduce me to him because um, I wanted to, you know, use him as the subject for my film. But prior to that, before we met, I asked his good friend, uh, Michael Kaluta, if he didn't mind me shooting a segment of an interview, like a short interview, and I would edit it and present it to Jeff when I meet him so that he has an idea of what I want us to do, you know, so he would have an, an idea of what my vision for the film would be. And so Michael was very nice and said yes. And without Michael, I probably wouldn't have made the film too. So, wow. uh, yeah, and Jeff saw it and he liked it, you know, and that was how it happened. Wow. Yeah, you know, people will watch this film and see, certainly they might be aware of where his life took him and the fact that he did uh, transgender later in life. And, you know, I think through your narrative and his words, his own words, uh, I will also call him Jeff for the purposes of the conversation, um, that, you know, really he's a very conflicted man and I think uh, also very shy. And yet you got him to be incredibly candid about his art choices and certainly his life choices as well. And um, was that hard to kind of uh, get him? I mean, because really there, you know, there are relationships that start and finish that he talks about and, and certainly talks about the beginnings and the ends of those. Uh, was it was it difficult for Jeff to, to talk about this? Um, no, uh, actually, it was. It wasn't very difficult for him. He actually was very candid and um, very chatty, and he it almost sounded like he wanted to talk to someone, you know, about his. That's body. great. And uh, I was very lucky that he chose me as because I, I heard from a lot of people that he was he wasn't very talkative or he wasn't very um, um, you know expressive because he is sure. very very shy. I mean that I I think I I agree with, but once he gets to know you and he lets you in his his life then he's actually very funny very very smart guy um definitely and he i know people would think he was conflicted and maybe he was but i did not get that impression at all i oh i mean i did not know him for a long time because i know there are other people who's know who, who who've known him for uh you know for a you know a lifetime and i'm sure they have their um, own opinions based on their own experiences with him. But for the three, two years that I've known him, um, I did not at all find him conflicted. Um, I don't know okay. if it was me or maybe that was the point in his life where he was more, you know, resolved and and yes. accepting about your life. Because we do go through our our doubts when we were younger, you know, and our struggles and but after a while, as you get older, um, I think you become more, um, you le learn to accept yourself, I think, after a while. And I, I don't know if that's the case with him, but I, I think he, I mean, I, and I hope I showed it in the movie that 
he, this was someone who knew exactly what he was doing right from the beginning, and it seemed like he was aware of all the choices that he made, whether it was good or bad. I mean, I thought that was like, I was when we were interviewing him, I was like, I kept saying, you did that? I was like, you were fine with that? <laughs> and and, I, and I, sometimes I'd be like, how could you do that? He's your friend. <laughs> and he just smiled. Wow. Yeah, I never thought he was... Um, he, he he wasn't regretful. He wasn't like oh, he, he never would blame anyone. I never heard him say, "Oh, I'm here because of this or I'm here because of that." I remember one time I asked him, um, one of his biggest issues I think that I I, I don't know if people knew was um, he was um, depressive. He was he 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 was you know, he had issues with depression. And he would have moments when we would shoot that he would be in a bad state, and 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 we would not do anything when he would, when he had his bad days. Okay. So one time I remember him. I asked him because he said he wasn't feeling good and things were not. Um, uh, he wasn't in a healthy state at that time during that day. I I called him, and so I mentioned something like maybe you're in the wrong place. You know, maybe you needed to be somewhere else to be, you know, so that you would take your mind off things and maybe you would be in a more positive environment. And he just laughed and he said, he said, believe me, Maria, I'm, I'm in the right place. And, you know, I was like, I, I, you know, so he always had a choice. And I think he, first for, for my, I don't know if it was for my benefit or whatever, but every time I talked to him, he seemed to always know what he wanted. So, Okay. Well, and certainly um, by the time we get to where he was as you were filming it, yeah, he had made his choices and and seemed to had created a life that he could handle, manage, and was content. And also, I mean, the amazing thing, this is one of the guys from the studio, which, you know, is is famous to a generation of of comic book fans. Uh, Some of my listeners are younger and they may not know, but you mentioned Mike Kaluta, Bernie Wrightson. Barry Windsor Smith and Jeff and the three others have certainly, um, you know, generated work since the time of the studio and, and had, you know, significant runs at some of the major comic publishers like DC and Marvel um, and continue to make great work today in some cases like Bernie and, and Mike Kaluta. Um, but Jeff really left comics, went into the fantasy art world more, you know, and, and really more painting and then certainly just kind of stopped and, and like you said, wasn't going to conventions. So he didn't keep up his persona. So there really was this mystery. And a lot of it was also the fact that he finally just even stopped painting, which, you know, might shock some creative people. And, you know, that, so yeah, please speak, speak about, you know, that journey of his. Well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned the younger artists or the younger crowd, because I would, I would like to let them know that, they really should look into all these four guys' work, and even artists yes. from the past, because um, especially if you want to do comic book work, because that—that's really how comics were done back then. You know, people actually drew on paper and you <laughs> and pencil and studied and worked on stuff that they couldn't do all the time. I remember when I was at Michael Kaluta's house, and he showed me—I I looked—I was looking because he had tons and tons of books. Um, and he, on top of the shelves, uh, there were a bunch of like um, sketchbooks. And I said, what are those? And he said, oh, um, 
I don't remember exactly what he said, but I it, I remember that he it was more to the effect like him saying these are the books that 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 I that shows the stuff that I need to work on or like I guess it's his practice <laughs> books, you know and and sure yeah and these guys didn't get to be very good at what they did just by you know uh, depending on their talent I mean they drew all the time <laughs> yes. yeah they worked at it absolutely. Right, and you know, you get. I think you get that certainly when you show a lot of of Jeff's work as well. Um, you know that, and and really, they talk about this as well. They talk about their time together when they they form the studio. And it's funny, uh, you know, a lot of younger people know about the image creators breaking away from the publishers and starting uh, Image Comics, doing their own thing. Uh, back in '76, these four artists. Uh, Kaluta, Jones, Wrightson, and Smith all decided to to form this this space and and create the studio and then also make that amazing book from 1976 that featured their art and you know it really was a statement and it made them a lot of money I'm assuming too back then I mean well, it was really this kind of unheard of, or or maybe not but it was this unheard of project that well, outside of like working for Marvel or DC or a paperback company that's doing a fantasy book. You know, they they really created this this book of 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 ideas and and their and their paintings and drawings and stuff, and it's amazing. Well, they they had a couple of things going for them. I mean, first of all, they were very driven. Um, then they were very talented, and they were also very popular. So, so mm-hmm. and and given that that they all had that, they even decided to like, okay, let's get really better at what we do by just doing what we want to do. So I think that's. Yeah, not a lot of people would do that. And uh, yeah. you're from Chicago, you know Michael yes. Jordan. You know how yes. many, he won a lot of Leo championships. He he, re- he retired, came back, retired. But by the time he retired, he had like what four rings or five rings? Six but rings. Jeff Jones retired or or stopped doing what he, you know, stopped doing a lot of you know full time commercial work when he was just getting towards the peak of his career. He was like, oh, I'm getting famous. You know what? I'm just going to stop and do my thing. So, you know, he did a lot of stuff that we, I would never do, especially if you want to go, you know, if you have a, you have all these goals to become successful in life. Cause he was just like, he did a lot of things that, that we, even up to now, I would think would have been ahead of his time. I mean, these four guys did, um, you know, like, like uh, with his transgender, um, with the um, with all the you know with his freelance, with his doing fine arts. I mean, he did that way back then. When I mean, even even Frank Frazetta, I think, or the other guys, they kept doing their commercial work because they needed you know they needed the work. And right. even though you know, I'm saying they didn't stop working for other people. Uh, but Jeff actually, right by the time he was became, becoming famous, was like. Eh, I'm just gonna stop this, and I'll just improve on my craft and just do the stuff that I want to do. So it, Jeff, if he wanted to, even to the very last day, he was not lacking of publishers and clients who wanted his work. So money was not the issue, because I know people who would have bought, you know, a sketch on a table napkin from him. Certainly. Uh, but yeah. And he knew that. I I kept telling him that. I said, Jeff, you know, if you do something for the film. I won't have to do Kickstarter. <laughs> <I can't>. <laughs> <laughs> right? But it's, sure. Of course, no, you're right. This is a 
smiled at me and said, nah. I'm like, fine. So I had to go find, you know, the money somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. And the, the great thing is, people are going to be blown away by his art when they see it because he is equal to these peers that we're talking about of his, the Kalutas, the Wrightsons, the Barry Windsor Smiths, the Frazettas, because his fantasy art is of that Frazetta quality that it's just mind-bogglingly good. And just, you, you know, his ideas. Um, and also, they came at a time when they were still, when, when Jeff was still doing comics and the rest of them, when, they, when Warren Publications was really expanding uh, the ideas of comic book art beyond the clean lines of the, you know, people like um, Kurt Swan doing Superman. And I love Kurt, Kurt Swan. But, you know, those kind of, cla or even the Milton Kniffs and uh, the adventure artist style and stuff. I mean, these guys really came with a more, uh, um, I guess, fine art uh, background and, and inspiration to tell these science fiction and fantasy stories. Right. I would I would say that they started all these painted graphic novelly type painterly type yes. of comics. And I could I I don't know, I could be wrong if I am, please let me know. But I think they were the first one they were the they were the ones who started it. Uh, I think you're right. Then. Uh now we have all these other painters, you know, now we have Bill Sinkevich, Kent Williams, uh George Pratt, who actually George Pratt and Kent and John J. Muse were actually sort of like uh, big fans of Jeff as well. So, sure, sure. Uh, so I think they led the way towards that because I think when these artists were much younger and they saw what could be done, you know, instead of like a typical Jack Kirby-ish cover, which is still great. I'm, I'm not discounting. Absolutely. Or, but, but then somebody goes in and does something, you know, same subject matter, but all of a sudden it's in the um, John Singer Sargent style then you're kind of like, these kids are like, oh my God, you can do that. So a Certainly. lot of the artists, I think, who were in the movie uh, felt that when they first saw Jeff's, Jeff's and the studio guys work. So, um, and I think that was their, their, their biggest contribution, you know, to inspire other artists. I think for me, that's a wonderful thing because you've, you've reached and communicated through your artwork and have touched other people's lives. Another thing that I love too is you're covering this period, and um, the way you present it in the documentary is terrific because it really shows that the comic book artists and writers of that time were uh, living that rock and roll lifestyle that we see so much in music documentaries. But I think it was great to see because these are artistic people, obviously, and it it's just I mean New York in the early '70s. You know, there's even the HBO show right now, Vinyl, uh, happening. But uh, you'd hear about their their uh, Friday night parties, uh, you know, Louis Simonson and the others talk about these parties. And we're seeing Starenko and Neil Adams and Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and certainly uh, Louis Simonson as kids. Yes. Yes. I mean, and it's so great to see them, you know, really being young people. And I think young people who go to conventions and know these names, I think it will be great for them to see this as well and see them really living the same kind of life that any 20-year-old is living when they're just getting started and their creative juices are at their peak, but they're just having fun. Right, and Weezy, Louise is, you know, she's another she's another trailblazer. She was probably one of the few women in comic books during that time who worked with all the good artists. I mean, it takes a lot to be in that position at that time. 
because you, you have to be very good at what you do and you have to be able to communicate with all these crazy talented artists, you know, for them to get the work done in, in, on time, to get the best job, um, um, you know, in uh, as possible for the project. And she was, from what I heard, an amazing editor. And during that time, there was very few women uh, involved in the comic book Definitely. industry. So no, all, you're right. these, all these people that were in the film, I, I just thought I'd like to bring these people to everyone's attention now because, you know, it's history as far as I'm concerned, and it will be history um, at some point. And we forget. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring all these, I, I mentioned a lot of the older guys, people forget about them, you know? And yes. somebody asked me about one of these guys, like uh, the guy who did the first Conan. Oh, my God. Um, I can't oh, uh, their names. You, and you're not talking about Barry. But, Al Williamson, uh, I mean. Oh, Al Williamson, but certainly. It wasn't Al Williamson, but Al Williamson, uh, all Roy those Frank. guys. And I didn't know who they were. And I was like, who are these guys? I don't know who they are. And so, and somebody, one of the, my artist friends said, here, they showed me the work. And I was like, oh my God, how can we forget these types of people? I don't understand. So I brought them in and I showed their work as well because I wanted people to know this guy did this. Um, and they might not be part of the bigger picture, uh, the story of the film, but they were a big part of Jeff's life way back then because they mentored him. And, Understood. And I think I think I, I wanted to mention them because I figured if it triggered something with the viewers, they will then hopefully Google them and learn more about these guys, you know, and before it's too late, and then they become obscure. So, right. Uh, well, and that's and and to talk to these people before they they leave. I mean, my God, you've got Mobius talking about you know Jeff's impact on his work, and it's, uh, what a what a wonderful thing that you were able to get this before before he passed away, and and you know so that's great. But no, I agree with you, and truly one of the reasons why I do my podcast and speak to some of the older creators is for that reason as well. No, their work is significant; it shouldn't be forgotten, and also. I want them to tell their story while they can, because yeah. sometimes people who look back put their own um, feelings on onto the, what they're reporting, and sometimes they get it wrong, frankly, and they or they misinterpret what um, you know an intent of an artist or a, a significant person, what, regardless of what the history is that you're trying to do. Let the person tell their own story and answer those questions, rather than. Sometimes what I see online is speculative. Oh, well, they were doing that because of uh, this reason. And, you know, some, it, sometimes it just isn't true. No, no. I mean, we can never really tell about how a person feels until, you know, I guess until we ask them. And sometimes they don't right. even know, you know. I mean, we don't. True. Sometimes. sometimes we do things just because we want to do it. And that's about it. I mean, one of the things that I remember that Jeff and I got along very well with was when things were not happening the way we want it to be, we kind of just like, okay, we just let it be. You know, we were like, or if we don't know something, because Jeff didn't, he's a very, very smart guy, but there are things that he'd be like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, if you don't know, then I won't ask anymore. You know? Yeah. Maybe there isn't an answer. Sure. Right. Sometimes things don't have an answer and that's the answer. You know, I, for me, I'm I'm not looking for why is the chair a chair, you know, I understand. <laughs> now we talk about Louise Simonson, and she's a very important part of the story as well. I had no idea 
I knew that Louise before she married Walter was Louise Jones and Wheezy Jones, but I didn't realize that she was married to Jeff. I mean, Stan Lee and Jim Lee aren't related, so you don't you don't necessarily realize that these contemporaries were you know together. But you know, yeah, they were married, and uh, you know, Jeff kind of always had this feeling that you know he liked he liked to dress in women's clothing. It was certainly in the fifties and sixties. I can't imagine the guilt and and uh, concern that someone an individual might feel about that in that environment and in that very repressed uh, time period in America. And then I, you, I think really the film really does just kind of explain uh, their relation, their initial relationship. And as you say, Louise is incredibly smart and I have a feeling probably helped. And, and you, you might be able to answer this. Did she, because of their, once they got together as a couple, um, she kind of helped Jeff get some of those initial jobs at Warren. I mean, she was an editor at Warren and yeah. Jeff's an artist. So I imagine that it was easier just in terms of, hey, you know, by the way, my boyfriend and then husband is this amazing artist. Let's use him for, you know, some of the stories. And yeah, certainly his work was worthy. I think she did. I mean, I, I didn't really ask her or him about that, but I was under the impression that she was in charge of sort of like um, clearing the path for him. Yeah, the business you know, side, sure. wanted to paint and work. I don't think, because he's right. very shy, so I don't think he would be going around, um, maybe even with, I, I would think she was the cheerleader for him. Certainly. Did you do this and do that? Because, you know, a lot of women, uh, wives do that, especially with artists. <laughs> they sure, try to absolutely. Keep together. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right about that. No, my father used to, you know, artist. refer to my um, mom as the brand of the outfit. Yeah, I understand what I you're think, talking about. Yeah, and I, you know, like I said, she's also a very, very smart lady, um, yes. very, very wonderful lady, talented as well, funny, you know, and uh, very compassionate. And um, I was really, really glad that she was able to honestly talk to me as well. I mean, she was very candid and honest, I yes. think, with with how she felt. And and granted, given the situation, I think I she had, you know, she perfectly was. You know her reactions were perfectly valid, and sure. I was I was very lucky that she was open enough to let us film that, and um, it showed. You know, and also the funny thing about Jeff, and this is why I was saying that he was very shy. A lot of the women, even his daughter, didn't know a lot of the stuff that he was talking about, or were not aware. And I remember Juliana saying, "Oh, I didn't know that about my dad," or some of the ex-girlfriends would say. You know more than we do. So wow. How, you know, that's how um, how hard to break into his shell it was for them. I I think you know if I could if I could speak for them, I, uh, that's that's because I would I would get after the film. They all told me they didn't know that, or a lot of them even even Weezy was like, oh, I didn't know that, or I wasn't aware of that. Interesting. So, and she, yeah, and and that's how that's how uh, private Jeff was. Um, and, and and was she was she willing? Uh, like, was it hard to get her to cooperate and and be on film I, and and talk no, about this? No, she 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 wasn't. She um, I think I think maybe the funny thing is, a lot of these people at first I thought were like not talking to each other. You know, given the the history and all the. Sure. Pain and hurt, but like I said, again, maybe as you get older, you know, people are a lot more forgiving. And also, Weezy has Juliana, 
So if you have a childhood someone, you, you can't just, you know, cross them out of your life, you know, especially if they're, you know, if they're trying to work on, on things, you know, between yes. themselves and everybody else. So um, it's funny because Jeff wasn't really helping me with all these people. I had to find all these people um to interview and Gret and knowing that I didn't know much about Jeff, it was it was a lot of work and it was so uh, very challenging. But uh, back then, it was my first first film, and sometimes I do believe in when about that saying that what you don't know won't won't hurt you or something like that, or what makes you uh, things that make you um, that you struggle with make you stronger. <laughs> Sure. Well, you don't know. You, yeah, if if it's your first film, you don't know what not to ask as a prof, you know as a seasoned filmmaker might. So luckily, that worked to your advantage, and you were able to, I would just say, yeah, obviously persevere and and do things that again maybe with more experience you'd be like, well, that's not done. I shouldn't do that. So it's that kind of like, <laughs> which is I'm right? Is it what that I'm kind of be doing for my second film? <laughs> well, there now you go. I'm, well, in fact, now I'm a yeah, more careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I and and another relationship, and and again, amazing story. But Von Bodie and and Jeff's relationship, and that's really amazing. And you know, and and hearing his son talk about Bodie's son uh, talk about Von and Jeff. Um, and that's what I'm saying. This is really just an amazing uh, story about about Jones and the, this incredible talent. Who had all these all these uh, personal challenges in his life, um, and 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 you know still managed you know was producing amazing art. I mean, did did you get the sense that uh, maybe he really was just uh, probably most at peace when he was drawing? Again, now at the end of the story, he's not drawing anymore and seems very content. But did you know did any sort of solace in 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 the work and that that's really kind of where he could really express himself uninhibited by what others might think. Yes, well, he did mention that his life was crazy back then. Not not crazy in a like 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 a bad way. Maybe it is for some for some of his friends, but but there was a lot of things going on. I mean, he had he had all these issues. He was younger, so he did say. Because I did ask him. I remember asking him, "How is it that your life is so crazy, but your artwork seems to be very calm and?" Yes. And, and because that's the feeling you get, you know, I mean, yes. when I do art direction, being a nun, I'm not a good painter, I'm not a good drawer, but I, the way I would art direct these great artists would be, I can't tell them how to paint, you know, I can't tell them how to do, I can't tell them what color to use, I can't tell them this is how I want it to be, but I give them impressions of what I think I like, and when their work comes in, you... I, I give them my reaction. I don't go, you know, oh, you should do... I, I go, well, something... I just go, oh, this makes me feel like this or this makes me feel like that. So with Jeff, all his pieces, no matter what it is, they all have the same feeling of calmness, of of just... You look at it and you get this sense of, of, of like, peacefulness, which is weird because the artist's life is not that way. And he said, well, that's why I paint that way. He said, that's probably... You know, he said, that's why I paint... It's to find, you know, it's an escape for him. And I think wow. he said that, yeah. And, wow. and that's why it shows, I guess. You know, I I don't know if, if I just think that's the way he thinks, you know. An artist 
an artist is unique because of how he thinks. You can never have two of the same guy because there's only one vision. So, and it comes from somebody's way of thinking. So, sure, you know, like everybody can 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 do can copy Frazetta, but the feeling of the real Frazetta is not going to be there. Understood. If, yes. If you look, you know, the things that you don't see are actually what matters the most. So, when you see a painting, I remember seeing a Phil Hale one time on on one of I think it was Playboy and my husband who loves. Phil Hale's work showed it to me and he said, mm-hmm. oh, here's a new Phil Hale painting. And I was like looking at it and I was like, that looks like Phil Hale, but it, does some, it doesn't feel like his work, you know? And sure enough, it was done by somebody else. I didn't even realize. Wow. That. Okay. Crazy. Man, yeah. No, and I, don't, I know what you mean in terms of, yeah, there's the serenity. And also, am I, I mean, it seemed like in some of the uh, uh, paintings that you, that you chose for the film, um, in some of the female faces, you see Jeff, and it, it seems like Jeff, and I, maybe that's just my own reaction to the art, but I kind of see Jeff in, the, in some of the women's faces. Well, Jeff's work was an extension of himself, so I think that's unavoidable. You know, I mean, there you especially go. When he was trying to find whatever it was he was trying to find when he wanted to be good at it, you know, when he was when he was painting it. So you can't take away the artist's mind and persona from the work because it is him. So I, I'm not surprised that a lot of his paintings have semblances to, to, to him physically or, you know, there are some messages coming up probably, but it all depends on what you get because Jeff won't tell you. He likes, he, he, for a smart person, I think that's one of the reasons why he was also lonely. It's very hard for him to find people who can can understand him. I mean, if you're at a different level where you do things so differently, you know, you'd have to go and hang out with the Von Bodies, you know, who also does things differently because those are probably the people who you could connect most. And they did um, in their own way. Yes. But it's very hard, you know, so so Jeff wanted, like to see people's reactions. He, I think he liked that. He, he, he was, he, he would rather have you explain because for him, he learns, oh, I didn't even see that from what I was doing. So I think that that sort of like gets him uh, going, knowing how how um, his work affected people in different ways. I understand what you're saying. And also, it was great to hear Kaluta even talk about how uh, they, the three of them would struggle, Windsor Smith and him and, uh, and Wrightson, in terms of what they were trying to draw and their feeling was that Jeff was doing it so effortlessly. And in, in the meantime, Jeff felt like maybe I wasn't working hard enough watching the other three work and, and that, you know, Jones felt that, you know, he had to, you know, work harder. And they're like, no, you, and you know, Kalu's like, no, you don't understand. We wish it was as effortless as you seem to be. And that's great. And it, it just, yeah, just the, 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 you know, again, appreciating the genius of, of Jones's work and, and the way that he approached it. Well, it, they were all crazy good. That's all I can say. All of them were crazy good. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I've, had the, I've, I've met Bernie and I've met uh, Michael. Um, I never met Barry. And, uh, and also I, people, uh, people shouldn't forget, they really worked very hard to learn to become very good at what they did. Nobody, they're just not drawing, you know, they really studied, they researched, they traveled, yeah. um, you know, they spoke to people, they, 
they they read a lot. So these guys are not, they're very serious about becoming good at what they do. So they're not just talented, they're also very skilled. And you, you don't get that just by, you know, doing your own thing. You know, you, you, you have to have the, um, the, um, the, um, the, the, the willingness to learn from others. Mm-hmm. So, well, you mentioned Michael. You mentioned Michael Jordan earlier. It's like what Malcolm Gladwell always says: you have to put your ten thousand hours of work in to become great. And they had the work ethic to, to really, you know, to 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 get better. And they wanted to get better, and were willing to put the time in to get better. Right, right. And it's just unfortunate that in the comic book industry, um, a lot of artists are not. A lot of people don't know how to tap into their their abilities. You know, people think that, okay, I'm giving you everything you need, just do it. Um, I used to tell um, my art directors who used to work for me when I was at Wizards of the Coast, uh, you don't hire the artist's hand, you hire his mind as well. Mm-hmm. Because if he just did what you told him to do, you, you should have just done it yourself. You know, if you're an illustrator, if you're an art director who can page and draw, what, what's the point of going to someone who's, who's got this magnificent mind as well if you're just going to tell him how to do it, to do his job? So, so, and I, and coming from the other side, being an art director too, all of these artists are crazy. They're also very hard to work with because they want to do things a certain way, and sometimes they forget that this is a job. You know, as an art director, you have a responsibility to your marketing department. Yeah, so, so a lot of them sometimes feel entitled because there's this and that. And so it's, it's, you know, being an art director is a very hard job. <laughs> Understood. Sure. No, you've got to, you got to wrangle people that aren't used to work, uh, you know, requirements and getting your, you know, deadlines and, you know, things like that. No, I, I understand. I've, I've spoken to many an art director and I can appreciate the frustration. Yeah. And, and you got, you have to do a lot of research. So you find the right, if you find the right artist who loves the subject matter that you're working on, that's the person you should go to because you'll get more than what you pay for. You know, that's, Understood. You, get, you get their heart, you get their mind, you get their time. But if you go, you know, if you go to Dave McKean and say, and, and ask Dave McKean to like, Hey Dave, can you do a Spider-Man for me? a la Jack Kirby. I mean, I'm sure he can do it. <laughs> you know? I'm sure he can do it, but would he want to do it? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. You've got, you've got amazing artists too. Like I said, talking about, uh, uh, Jones and, and really the studio and all. And we mentioned Bill Sienkiewicz uh, and uh, George, George Pratt and uh, Dave McKean and um, certainly Paul Pope. And Paul Pope, it's great to see him, you know, speak as much as he does. Uh, I know that's someone that a lot of younger younger readers know and, and, and love his work. Um, yeah, it, I, I really think it's a great combination of, of Jones's peers, but also the, the people that he inspired. Uh, to right. to do the work that is being done now and everything. I mean, uh, God, Sienkiewicz is very, I think, right. uh, candid, you know, about his love for the work and everything, right. and just I you think, know, astounded by it. Right. I think the best people to have talked to, to talk about Jones's work would be people who did what he did too. You know, I think they're the best people to. I'm not. Good, I I didn't want to interview like an art dealer or his ex girlfriend or a neighbor. You know, about what do you think of Jones's work. I think the, the the experts on 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 how to describe and assess Jones' work would be people who actually were doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a professional 
it's 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 a it's a a professional and a personal assessment, I think, of his work. Even though some of them don't know him very well personally, but I think you know um, a lot of artists um, seem to. Um, especially the artists that they, they admire and respect seem to have a grasp of what, how that person thinks or how that person or what that person is trying to do. You know, if you're a fan, I, I don't think those are things that you might catch as easily as all these guys can. And that's one of the reasons why I asked, you know, the Mobius, the, the Dave McKean, uh, Neil Gaiman of what they thought his work was, because then they would, were able to put, um, you know, um, sort of like a, a very educational uh, assessment of of how his work is done and and why his work feels that way. So. Agreed. Yeah. No, it comes. It absolutely comes through. That's why I, mean, I got to tell you, if you're this was your first documentary, it's I really think you did an amazing job. And also, I'm glad that in the two years since we met, my my pleasure. But also, uh, I'm congratulations on the success for the film. You were telling me uh, it won uh, won a couple awards at a, at a couple festivals. Yes, I was I was very surprised um, when it did because you know it's it's a small indie film like self produced, um, so marketing is not a very you know um, broad. Uh, opportunity it didn't bring a lot of opportunities for me, but when it did, it was very, um, it was very fulfilling, and and the fact that you're appreciated is nice. I now actually understand, you know, when you get those those big award shows on TV like the Oscars, and everybody's like, oh, I'm so happy, I'm blah 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 blah, blah. I'm like, thank you God, thank you everybody. <laughs> I, you know, I I always thought that, oh my God, you guys are just saying that, you know, but you know what? They are very, they're from the heart. I'm telling you, the effort that anybody puts on any type of film, whether it's a crappy film or a good film, the effort is tremendous. And I, one thing I learned, I would never say a film is crappy anymore just out of respect for the people who actually got it done. <laughs> understood, model, yes, all the work that it, it takes to actually work. make one. Yes, yeah. understood. And a lot of money, like you said, and a lot of, you, you told me, when we were preparing to do this interview that you were very fortunate in terms of, uh, you know, your, your friends that help you on your films, your, your editor and your, you know, uh, your second director and, and, you know, things like that, your assistant director. Right. Cause they, they did this from, they didn't do it because they liked me. They did it because they liked Jeff. <laughs> they they wow. are Jeff's work. And, uh, without them, I, the film wouldn't have been done because there was a lot of challenges, you know, and, and any filmmaker would know that. So, um, I I was just lucky, I guess, that I didn't know what I was doing and I just kept going. <laughs> that really helped me. Well, um, it it doesn't look like you didn't know what you're doing because no, the the movie I think turned out great. It won best documentary at the Burbank Film Festival. Yes, it won best documentary um, at the Burbank Film Festival. I think it was a year ago, um, wow. and it was a really nice surprise because it was just nice to be appreciated by people who are actually, you know. Uh, real and expert and traditional filmmakers. Um, for me, that was a really, really nice surprise, and I felt humbled and I just was like very happy. You know, I was it was it was amazing to be to be appreciated by people who actually knew what they were doing. <laughs> Absolutely, and and you told me that you you got to show it at Disney. 
Tell me about that. Yes. Did, did... Um, a lot of Disney uh, in Burbank actually invited me to show the film uh, in their private theater. Um, and it was one of their movies that were coming out. And so the artists were, most of them were very busy and a lot of them um, couldn't make it, but it was still a, a, a packed with, with artists from Disney. They took a, uh, a break from their work as we did it at lunchtime and they provided pizza and everything else and they showed the film and everybody loved it. I had a um, Q&A afterwards and everybody clapped at the end of it. And these are artists, animators at Disney, you know, top artists. And I met some of the guys in charge of different departments who were fans of the studio guys, um, not just Jeff. And they took their time out from, from their film and um, they were planning to invite me again and show it at a bigger at their bigger private theater. I'm like, how many theaters do they have in that? <laughs> I know. But, uh, but um, that's still in the, I don't know if that, that's going to happen, but it was nice of them to ask. But uh, yeah, I was, artists are very, very receptive to the film and they seem to appreciate it a lot more than, than most people. But I also get people who have nothing to do with comics who actually, uh, you know, different age range, who were actually affected by the film as well. So, so that makes me very happy, you know. Um, I couldn't ask for anything more than that. You know, you do. You capture that era, really, uh, in terms of the interviews and the uh, the photography that, that is used. Um, like I said, I mean, my God, seeing all these pictures of uh, these creative people that we know now as kind of the elder statesmen and women, of of the industry as as kids really just having fun and just being young in New York and and kind of experiencing life it's it's really exciting and I can understand the artists getting excited about the film as well because I do think that they will learn a lot uh, you know people who haven't seen it that are are you know artists and and writers will will find this I think really informative I can only imagine that you got a lot of footage talking to Mobius and talking to Mike Mignola and, and Neil Gaiman and uh, Kaluta and, and, and Louise, uh, you know, so um, the, the, the DVD, well, first off, you know, like, do you, do you expect to do anything with that footage? Yes. Well, I'm, um, well, as you know, again, it's always going to be a question of funding and money because everything, sure. you know, everything you do with film is three times as much, you know, on any other project I've ever worked for on um so i'm hoping that when funding comes in eventually that i'd be able to do a a uh, maybe a, a director's cut version or a some anniversary version with which would include a lot of the footages that were cut or were not included because i do have a lot of oh, the guys artists talk a lot <laughs> <laughs> So I do have a lot, a lot, so much of it. I couldn't even, sometimes I tell people stories and, and then I remember, oh my God, I, it's not on the film. So, but yes, I, I will be coming out hopefully once funding comes through. So if anybody's listening, if you're interested, you can help me with that. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I, I do. I am planning to come out with a, another version, hopefully sometime soon. Well, and in the meantime, um, I want people to know how they can see the film beyond, you know, the festivals that you've showed it at. You are selling the film. It is at Amazon, at yes, Amazon.com. Yes, it's on Amazon.com, uh, and it's also, uh, you can buy it through me as well, through my website. 
um, macabfilms.com, or you can contact me through the Facebook um, page of the film. Just put in Better Things, Life and Choices of Catherine Jeffrey Jones. You can message me there. And also Kino Lorber, who is my distributor, sells the downloadable version as well. So if you don't want to buy the DVD and you just want to watch it streaming, you can go to their website. I think it's alivemind.com, which is their um, the, the the branch that is handling my film. So okay. Oh, because I was wondering. Yeah, I was wondering if it was available at all via streaming or or whatever. So you can you can rent it online to watch it as well. I don't know if you can rent it, but I think you can buy it. Buy a download? the downloadable version. Yes, I'm not sure about the streaming. I know they're starting to do that, but I don't know if they've caught up on all the films. But I I, I do know they're they're looking into that. So okay. But, that's great. Well, I'll, and I'll and I'll give people at the end of the interview more ways to you know to to understand you know to figure out how to how to purchase it because it is it's an amazing movie, um, and absolutely worth worth people's time. And I you know I I think you I think you did a hell of a job honestly. I uh, I thank you. You know I are there other comic subjects or uh, fantasy art uh, subjects that you would like to do? I mean I don't want to pigeonhole you and just do that. What other films are you are thinking about thinking about making? Well, like I said, I, I do want to see if I can complete the studio, guys. I mean, I, it's it's a dream. You know, it's like, I might as well, right? And even for comic book fans or art lovers who just want to know how illustration and comics, like how 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 they get done. I mean, I don't know if people realize that, but making a comic book is one of the hardest art forms on the planet. You know, it's not, it, you're not just painting one one panel. You're, you're doing a lot of things. Yeah, uh, in in a comic book that's that's so time consuming in a good way, you know, especially for the artist. But but uh, it it also takes a certain skill to be able to tell a story. It's not just drawing. You also have to you know you have to paste the pages. You have to um, make sure that all the words are where they should be. So there's a lot of stuff going. It's almost like doing a mini movie, you know. Certainly. It's, you know, and it, it's it's very hard. It's not just it's it, there's also, of course, an easy way of doing it, <laughs> where you can just do whatever you want. Who cares, right? But if you want to do it right, then I think you should learn from from people who are very good and successful with it, because you'll you'll see the difference, and you know you learn a lot from them. Absolutely. Well, you know, yeah, we you know, so people can again find the movie at uh, Kino Lover's website at uh, Macab Films. Right, that's my website, and you can buy it from me, which would be nice. Absolutely. um, And Amazon as well. So, um, and and if you guys like the film, feel free to leave a a comment on Amazon because the more feedback I get, the better it will be for the film. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, no, that's the thing. I want I want people to know how best to support you and your efforts. And yeah, I really do. I would love to see you complete. Uh, interviewing all the studio guys. I'm concerned about Barry, or not Barry, Bernie Wrightson. Um, you know, he had a kind of a rough uh, health uh, year in the last year or so. I don't know if you've if you've heard recently how he's doing. I haven't, and I, no. and I don't know. If... Yeah, I ha- I've heard about that, but I haven't heard back from him. And I I, I try not to, um, you know, I tried not to to interfere or or, or question too much, only because I I you know I I want to give him some privacy because I know. Oh, certainly. I know health issues are not fun issues, and sure, you know I'll just wait and see what happens with that in time. But, but I think uh, for now I got Barry, 
Um, I almost want to say I'm sure I could get Michael, but I don't want to be presumptuous. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> so Understood. Very, yeah. So, so well, he came across incredibly, incredibly comfortable on your film, and my own experience with him. Uh, big gregarious fun guy and yes. really was incredibly kind and I mean god I, I met him 10 years ago at a show and we were talking and uh, he was doing sketches for people and it was I'm like what, you know could I get a sketch he said sure and I said how much and he said how much do you want to pay and I'm like oh my god and I'm like well I don't want to like insult $5? you and said, well no yeah well that's and I, I'm like is $60 insulting you and he's like not at all and he and he drew this beautiful. It was on the back of one of those uh, comic book uh, the the cardboard they put in when they bag the uh, comics. And he did this lovely little ske- shadow sketch that really filled the entire thing. And I, I mean, I am really excited that I have this lovely Michael Kaluta piece. But it was at a time where I didn't have a lot of money. I was between jobs, and I'm like, well, it, it, would that insult you? And he's like, not at all. He's a very, very nice guy, very smart man as well, because I know when I interviewed him, there was a lot of things he said that was very, very educational and informative, and especially during the past. You know, I mean, he's like a walking encyclopedia of, like, what happened in the 70s and with the artists back then, and I thought, I caught it all on tape, but I have a very, very good editor by the name of Mark Jackson, who lives in L.A., who edited for me, and... He was very strict. He wouldn't let me go over 90 minutes. <laughs> Interesting. Wow, yeah, it's an 82-minute film. So <laughs> That's really he's, he's an awesome guy. I mean, I and thank God he's going to be working with me again. Um, I hope, unless, you know, something comes up. But, uh, but, yeah, he's an amazing editor. And without him, you know, the story would have been, like, all over the place. And I would have had, like, a, you would have had a five-hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I would have watched the five-hour movie. Honestly, I, I thought I, really, it was fascinating. Right? Well, but also, I, told, I told him, I said, well, okay, why don't the people, let's do the five hours, and the people who can't stand five hours can just leave, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't, um, he didn't go for it. He didn't go for I under, it. I understand. <laughs> but that was <laughs> Another it, person that you have on your, on your crew uh, works with Game of Thrones, and I'm and I'm forgetting now. Yes, he's my assistant director. Will Simpson is the storyboard artist for Game of Thrones for all seasons. He's been like wow. from the beginning to now. He's he's also uh, Northern Ireland's premier uh, storyboard artist for films. He's worked with all directors like Neil Jordan, um, wow. all these guys that are you know. And and I was very lucky because he he's a good friend of mine, a big fan of the studio guys, and he taught me. And he was actually the monkey on my back <laughs> because when I, when we were doing the film, I, you know, remember it was the first time I was interviewing people. So sometimes I would talk over people, which is not a good thing. Right. So I had a tendency to do that. And what he would do is whenever they set me up, wherever I'm supposed to sit, he, they would put an extra chair for my assistant director, Will Simpson, and he would be behind me and he would tap my shoulders if I'm over, you know, if I do something wrong or say something wrong. Understood. Yes. So he was like my signal man, and he um, <laughs> he taught me really well. In the end, he, <laughs> we were supposed to tap on the left shoulder all the time. And then one time at the end of, you know, when we were wrapping up, he tapped me on the, what was it, the the, the right shoulder, the other yes. shoulder. And, and that confused me, so I had to stop sh- uh, shooting. And I said, what was that for? I said, oh, you're doing well now, he said. <laughs> <laughs> One for yes, two for no. That's very good. I like yes, that. Yes, 
we had that. He was on all my interviews that way. He was right behind me. He was right behind me because he, he wanted to, you know, he was teaching me. It was amazing. I, like I said, I couldn't have done this film the way it was without my amazing crew. So. Well, I appreciate you, you pointing out, you know, some of your, you know, uh, the things that, that they had to correct you on because it doesn't come across in the film. The, the film really does. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a first film. It, it really does. It tells this very interesting story well. And uh, really, the interviews, uh, the, the responses uh, that you were able to get and the way that you put it together, it's absolutely worth seeing. It's called Better Things, The Life and Choices of Jeffrey Catherine Jones. And it's on DVD. And again, we'll, uh, at the end of this conversation, I'll tell you again how you can get it. And uh, I'm going to try and get uh, you know some of the Chicago people to figure out a screening or something like that so that uh, you, you, you visit Chicago occasionally. And, I, and I'm hoping that we can make this happen and uh, <laughs> set some, something up down the road. Because more people need to see this. And I, and I really, I, I hope that people who listen to the interview will, will buy the DVD or buy the download. And uh, and spread the word because this film really does need to be seen, and this part of comics history uh, should not go forgotten. So thank you for doing the film, yeah, and really looking you. forward to yeah, absolutely, and looking forward to uh, whatever you've got coming up. And uh, please stay in touch, and we'll uh, when you when the next film is ready, you are more than welcome to come back and talk again. Oh well, thank you so much, and I really appreciate this, um, John. Thanks again. <laughs> really glad I had the opportunity to uh, talk to Maria and let you all know about uh, the excellent film, Better Things, The Life and Choices of Jeffrey Catherine Jones. Uh, please uh, check it out uh, through Amazon or uh, through uh, Maria's site as well, Macab Films. And uh, I, I really hope that you do take a chance to uh, uh, buy this film and view it. It's, it's exceptional. It really, really is. All right, let's move on to Greg Pak. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, Greg said, hey, can I come on Word Balloon? And um, really, it's just been nuts uh, the last two months, and I really feel bad about that. But uh, the good news is uh, Greg has recorded uh, his own little monologue about this new Kickstarter campaign. It's only got a couple days left, and it is uh, to fund the uh, ebook called Kickstarter Secrets, an ebook of practical advice about running Kickstarter campaigns. And, uh, you know, this, uh, this is great. It's a teaser. But he gives practical advice here and I think is a good sample of what you can expect if you choose to uh, back this campaign and purchase this book, Kickstarter Secrets. So uh, I get out of the way and let Greg take over uh, the discussion of this uh, project, uh, but also has some great practical tips for creators who might be considering Kickstarter campaigns. Greg was great about it. Um, I, you know, I asked him, would, would you mind if I just you know, threw Word Balloon? Uh, present your recorded piece in its entirety. And he said, sure, the only thing he wants uh, people to do is go to kickstarter-secrets.com to, to pledge with the couple days left. Uh, so uh, I think it's a terrific book. And, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Greg's and, and everything that he does. His uh, his Marvel DC work, his Dark Horse work, his creator-owned stuff, like Code Monkey Save the World with uh, Jonathan Colton. And uh, I think this is a tremendous idea. Greg also wrote a great how-to-write-comics book with Fred Van Lenty a couple years ago. But uh, this is all about Kickstarter secrets. So uh, let's let uh, Greg explain the project and give you some tips on how to run a Kickstarter. Let's hear from Greg Pak himself, now on Word Balloon. 
Hi, my name is Greg Pock. I'm a comics writer and film writer best known for uh, projects like Planet Hulk and uh, my feature film Robot Stories. But I've also funded a bunch of projects on Kickstarter, including Code Monkey Save World and The Princess Who Saved Herself, two projects based on songs by Jonathan Colton, and a kid's book called ABC Disgusting, illustrated by the great Takeshi Miyazawa. Um, right now, I am in the very tail end of a Kickstarter campaign for a book of Kickstarter tips called Kickstarter Secrets. Um, and our stretch goal, our final, our last stretch goal for this project is to make a uh, audio book of the text of the book if we hit 8,000. So as kind of a teaser for that, I'm recording a uh, mini audio book of a Kickstarter primer I wrote last year of 22 uh, down and dirty Kickstarter tips. This is the article that kind of inspired my thinking about writing a full book. So this is just a taste of the kind of uh, practical <laughs> information you'll be getting from Kickstarter secrets on when the thing is finally done. Uh, so enjoy. And uh, if you like what you hear, go to kickstarter-secrets.com and feel free to back the project. Thank you so much. Greg Pox Kickstarter Primer. A small wave of folks have asked me for advice on running Kickstarters for comics or book projects over the last few months. It's a huge subject, and I'm still learning every day myself, but I thought I'd put together a few quick thoughts about what I've learned from the Kickstarter campaigns for ABC Disgusting, The Princess Who Saved Herself, and Code Monkey Save World. Number one, make sure you understand Kickstarter and are ready for everything that running a project requires. One of the best things you can do to prepare for running a Kickstarter is to back a bunch of Kickstarters and follow them for a few months. First, that will show that you're committed to the idea of crowdfunding and community building. Backers can be very suspicious of creators who have never backed another Kickstarter, sometimes rightly so. A creator who's backed multiple projects before launching his or her own is more likely to understand the culture of the site and the expectations of other Kickstarter backers. Second, you'll learn a huge amount about the general life cycles of Kickstarter campaigns as you read the updates about the trials, travails, and triumphs of the creators whose projects you back. Running a Kickstarter is a massive job. It requires a total commitment to the creative project you want to make, as well as the ability to budget, run a production, manage customer service, and handle publicity and marketing. Make sure you understand the scope of the undertaking before you plunge in. Two, make sure your project belongs on Kickstarter. Now, this is a tricky one, mainly because the glory of Kickstarter is that the conventional wisdom about what there's an audience for gets overturned every day on Kickstarter. So on the one hand, don't let anyone tell you there's no audience for your project. Your job is to prove there is. At the same time, don't walk into this thing blind. Study similar projects on the Kickstarter website. Think through what made them successful. Consider their quality, their ability to get press and attention, the reasonableness of their budgets, and take a look at your own project and think hard about where you fit in and what your realistic expectations might be. If your project doesn't match up in terms of quality, think about how to improve it before launching. If your project can't be described in a simple hook, think about how to pitch it better. If you don't have enough material to show off for the launch, take some more time to create more and better art. If there are a hundred very similar projects on the site already, think hard about what makes your project unique. Three, get pros to handle the legal and accounting stuff. Hire a good lawyer and a good accountant to handle that stuff. That's a job for the pros. Four, budget thoroughly and add 10% to your major costs. I've gotten cold sweats while looking over some seemingly successful Kickstarters that have raised tens of thousands of dollars because I can see what they've promised to deliver and I know they're going to end up in the red. This is what you desperately want to avoid. Budget for everything your project will require, including your postage and fulfillment costs. 
I highly recommend talking to actual fulfillment houses if you think you'll need to send out more than a couple of hundred packages. Get actual quotes from your printer and every other vendor you're planning to use. Ask lots of questions, talk with friends who have done similar projects and find out all the hidden costs. Create sample packages and weigh them at the post office to determine how much they'll actually cost to send across the country or overseas. Always assume the worst in your budget so that you won't be surprised. And repeat this process every time you add a new reward or stretch goal. 5. Tell the story of your project in both the video and the text description. People absorb information in different ways, so you can't expect the video to do all the work of explaining your project. You need good written text and static images, too. Also, I recommend getting a clear description of your project and what makes it awesome as early as possible in your pitch. Past credits are useful for helping folks determine if they're going to back the project, but potential backers are only going to get to that stage if your initial story pitch has wowed them. 6. Show as much of your project as you can. The Princess Who Saved Herself children's book, based on the classic song by Jonathan Colton, began life as a digital stretch goal for the Code Monkey Save World graphic novel Kickstarter, also based on the songs of Jonathan Colton. So when Jonathan and I launched the Kickstarter to make physical copies of The Princess Who Saved Herself, we had the huge advantage of being able to share completed pages. In fact, we delivered the complete digital version of the book to our Code Monkey Save World backers the day we launched The Princess Who Saved Herself Kickstarter. The book itself was the best advertising we could have had. With the ABC Disgusting Kickstarter, my team had four or five great pages that we were able to show off when the Kickstarter launched. Artist Takeshi Miyazawa, colorist Jessica Colleen, and literer Simon Boland were working on the book as the campaign progressed, and we shared a lettered preview of a good chunk of the pages in the last week. Of course, that could have been a risk. There was a chance we might have lost existing backers if they didn't love some of the new pages. But we were running a Kickstarter because we believed our project was awesome, so we showed as much as we could without spoiling the experience of reading the actual finished book. 7. Make sure your base reward actually delivers the project you're creating and that it's affordable. I'd guess that the average backer of a comics or publishing Kickstarter is willing to pay somewhere between $20 and $35 for the basic finished book. If your Kickstarter doesn't provide the thing you're making for a price somewhere around there, you're probably going to run into trouble unless you're offering a spectacularly massive reward like the great Tom Tomorrow's big double volume set. If you're charging a huge premium for a smallish book, you're looking less for readers and more for patrons, folks who are willing to give you tons of money overpaying for your art. That's possible, and I've seen a handful of projects survive that way, but not many of us have enough fabulously wealthy patrons to draw on for that strategy to work. I think it's a much stronger move to get the actual project into the hands of a much larger number of people for a lower average price. 8. Have a reward for every level of backer. So you've got that basic $20 level covered. But some backers might only have a few bucks, and others might be willing to spend much more money. With all my publishing projects, I've put in a 3 or $5 level for stickers, a 10 or $12 level for a digital version, and higher levels for signed copies or copies with signed book plates, along with a few very high levels for special things like the backer's likeness drawn into the book. I've also found that rewards of multiple copies of children's books do well. People with several small children in their lives often want to buy each of them a copy of the book. 9. Don't overdo it with rewards that will be incredibly hard to fulfill. With the Code Monkey Save World Kickstarter, we went a little crazy with t-shirts and mugs and posters and challenge coins. All of these items were awesome, and we loved making them. But every new physical object you add to your rewards increases the amount of time you'll be devoting to fulfilling the ancillary aspects of the Kickstarter instead of actually making the main thing the Kickstarter is all about. I have zero regrets about all those rewards. They were a blast and totally added value to the rewards those backers chose. But we made a conscious choice to scale down a bit with The Princess Who Saved Herself, which we just needed to print and wanted to get out to backers as soon as possible. At the same time, special rewards can be absolutely critical to getting smaller Kickstarters over the line. The likeness rewards in ABC Disgusting, for example, were key to nudging us up to where we needed to be to hit our goal. 10. 
Don't ask for too much for a first-time project, or a third-time project for that matter. We've all been dazzled by Kickstarter projects that rocket into five figures on their first day. But that's rare, and almost vanishingly rare for first-time creators. If you're launching a Kickstarter for your very first project, it's a great idea to aim low. Pick a project you can complete for just a couple of thousand dollars or less. Then build on the experience and audience you get to go to the next level and the next. Even for established creators, it's smart to keep the ask as low as possible without shooting yourself in the foot. That being said, I highly, highly recommend budgeting to pay your collaborators, both because it's the right thing to do and because projects that don't plan to pay people often don't get made. 11. Build your audience for months or years before you launch your Kickstarter. This may be the hardest piece of advice because the whole point of crowdfunding seems to be to open the doors to folks who have great ideas but haven't been able to get traditional support to make them come to life. But the reality is that Kickstarter backers are smart and choosy and will only support projects they fall in love with and that they think will actually get made. So successful Kickstarters tend to come from folks who have already done enough work to start honing their craft and building an audience. So if possible, it's a fantastic idea to get some work out into the world before you launch that first Kickstarter. Kickstarter is a great place to build audience, but it works best for folks who are able to bring some audience along to prime the pump. 12. Plan your launch dates and end dates carefully. I've launched each of my Kickstarters on Monday mornings and ended each one on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I launch on Mondays because if I'm getting pressed to coincide with the launch, I want a full work week for that press to have the chance to work its magic. Launching with press on a Friday would be a terrible waste because so many people zone out from Friday afternoon until Monday morning, and then that press cycle is dead. It's also smart to be aware of what holidays fall during your Kickstarter dates. We launched ABC Disgusting on the Monday before 4th of July weekend, which in retrospect might not have been the best idea. People were likely to be leaving on vacations early that week and were almost certainly online less. But we weren't ready to launch before then, and launching later would have put us in direct competition with the San Diego Comic-Con. So you do the best you can. 13. Reach out to everyone who's ever supported your work to promote your Kickstarter, but don't spam. If no one knows about your Kickstarter, no one will back it. But emailing or tweeting dozens of people who you don't personally know with a link to your Kickstarter isn't likely to help. Kickstarter is based on trust, and people who don't know you personally or by reputation aren't likely to help you spread the word about your project because they have no idea of the project's quality or if you'll actually finish it. So start with the people you know or the people who know your work. If you have pre-existing work, contact the folks who have interviewed you or reviewed your work in the past to see if they'll be willing to write about your new project. Post about your project frequently on your social media sites, particularly if you've been using social media for your professional work. Change all your bios to include the link to your Kickstarter. Change your email signatures to include the link to your Kickstarter. Don't be shy about reminding people about the project from time to time, but strive to find new things to reveal or talk about each time you do it. In general, I'm also a big advocate of casting my bread upon the water when it comes to crowdfunding and creative projects in general. Back other people's projects. Spread the word about other people's great projects to your own networks. Do it not because you expect an immediate tit-for-tat, but because you love the work and want to support it. That's the culture you're buying into when you launch a Kickstarter. Embrace it. 14. Figure out your niche and reach out to it. Many of the most successful projects on Kickstarter are projects that big companies might pass on because the target audience seems too niche. But the internet thrives on niches. There's a community for just about every interest. So if your project relates directly to a certain niche, figure out how to reach it. Ideally, before you launch your Kickstarter, you'll have spent months or years building relationships and joining communities that let you reach your niche. CodeMonkey Save World is a pretty extreme example of that. Its niche audience was Jonathan Colton fans, and Jonathan clearly had the best ability of anyone on the planet to reach them directly. So we definitely had that going for us. 15. There's a reason anthologies have great success rates. Just food for thought. Comics anthologies are incredibly hard to sell in the traditional marketplace, but they're consistently successful on Kickstarter. 
It makes perfect sense when you think about the number of people involved in creating an anthology. Sometimes 50 different creators can contribute. That means 50 different people will be sending updates about the Kickstarter out to their personal networks. Sometimes you have a project that involves tons of people. Sometimes it'll just be you and a few others. Each project needs to be what it needs to be for its own creative mandate. But if you're thinking about crowdfunding, be aware of the power of collaborators, both creatively and in terms of getting the word out. 16. Don't use Facebook ads. I keep getting tempted by these dumb things, but I don't see any new backers when I use them. If anyone has ever actually seen Kickstarter numbers increase as a direct result of using a Facebook ad, I'd love to hear. But it hasn't done anything measurable for me. Your results may vary. 17. Try to do actual events in physical spaces. During the Code Monkey Save World campaign, Jonathan and I did a number of events in New York City that absolutely helped goose interest, get press, and bring out more backers. Of course, we had a huge advantage in that Jonathan's an internet superstar musician who actually performed at those events. So this doesn't necessarily apply to every project. But if you have the chance to do signings or panels or events during your campaign, I highly recommend doing them and plugging your project. Reaching more people is always going to be a better plan than not. 18. Think about how to get attention at different stages in your campaign by providing new art or announcements at key moments. Most Kickstarter campaigns start off with a nice spike, then dip down, then come close to flatlining a few times in the middle of the campaign, and then end the last few days with another nice spike. So a big challenge is figuring out how to maintain and grow interest in the middle weeks of the campaign. Sometimes you'll have some nice built-in announcements. If you hit your goal before the end of the campaign, you can announce stretch goals. And if you have great stretch goals, you might be able to get more excitement and even some more press for them. During the Code Monkey Save World campaign, we came up with a stretch goal of making a digital children's book based on Jonathan's classic song, The Princess Who Saved Herself. That garnered a huge amount of attention. We had a number of backers say they were more excited about that bonus book than the main book. But not every campaign hits its stretch goal so quickly. At the time I originally wrote this, ABC Disgusting was halfway through its campaign and 82% funded, so we worked towards releasing a gorgeous lettered preview of the book complete with never-before-seen colored art. That helped us get new eyes on the project to help goose things in that middle stage. 19. Answer questions from backers and potential backers quickly and be upfront about any problems, miscommunications, or schedule changes. We live in an age in which people are used to getting fast answers via the Internet from the companies they buy from. When potential backers message you via Kickstarter with questions about the campaign, it's a great idea to answer them as quickly and courteously as possible. Same goes for answering backer comments. You can learn a lot from those messages and comments. There was a point during the Princess Who Saved Herself campaign when I realized a lot of people wanted multiple copies of the book. Listening to those requests and adding rewards with multiple copies helped us move a lot more books. For funded projects, creators have the additional responsibility to communicate about any problems or delays to the schedule and to stay on top of any problems backers might have during the fulfillment and shipping stage. If you're managing a Kickstarter, you're signing up for customer service. Embrace that job and do it right. 20. Always say please and thank you. Crowdfunding isn't just another way to sell your product. For backers, the campaign itself is an experience and a community, a chance to be part of something exciting at the ground level. As a creator, your dreams are coming true because of the excitement and generosity of your backers. Thank them sincerely and frequently because they're making it all happen. And if you do it right, maybe they'll be back for the next crazy project you throw out into the world. 21. Don't be afraid of failure. Your Kickstarter might fail. That sounds terrible. But I've heard Kickstarter's Craig Engler say multiple times that success rates for people's second Kickstarter projects tend to be very high. Creators often take all the lessons they've learned from their first failed Kickstarter to rework their budgets and scope, and many of their original backers come back on board to support their second try. 22. Adjust on the fly and never give up. If you have a 30-day Kickstarter campaign, you've got a lot of chances to figure out what's working and what isn't and adjust accordingly. Study your project stats on kicktrack.com. That's K-I-C-K-T-R-A-Q.com. 
pay attention to the referral data on your Kickstarter page to figure out what kind of outreach is working best. And if things aren't working, you can add better art. Replace your Kickstarter video. Come up with more attractive rewards. Rework your project description. I was recently a contributor to the Broken Frontier Comics Anthology Kickstarter with a story called Phantom Limb Ghost Puncher, illustrated by the great Tom Rainey. Given how that campaign was going, it seemed pretty destined to failure. But it had the most mind-blowing finish I've ever seen from our Kickstarter. You can go and check out the daily chart from kicktrack.com. You'll see a giant spike in the last three days. The raw numbers are that the project needed $58,000. That was its target. In the last three days, it made over 21000 That's uh, over a third of its funding came in those last three days. That late kind of surge is almost unheard of. But it happened because dozens of people involved in the project rallied and spread the word and put it over the top. So that's my basic Kickstarter advice in a nutshell. Hope it helps, and best of luck. Greg Pak, everybody. Uh, please support Kickstarter Secrets. Go to kickstarter-secrets.com, and that will uh, get you to the Kickstarter page with just a couple days left. Uh, help Greg out, back the ebook, and uh, learn from a guy who's been doing a lot of successful Kickstarter campaigns. I hope you enjoyed today's Word Balloon. It was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners and their support via patreon.com slash wordballoon. That's uh, where you can go if you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon and help me out financially. Uh, also, if you want to help out, you might want to consider buying Better Things, The Life and Times of Jeffrey Catherine Jones by Maria Cabardo. You can purchase it through Amazon, and if you go through the Word Balloon portal when you do it, or any of your Amazon uh, buying word balloon gets a little kickback so uh that's a great way to help out the show as well and to help out maria uh you can also stream the film as we said at uh kinolober.com uh, uh you can purchase the uh, digital copy of it there but why don't you do yourself a favor and uh buy the uh, actual movie itself uh, either through amazon or through uh, maria's website macab films m-a-c-a-b films.com Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Thank you very much for uh, spreading the word. I I really think that uh, the last uh, several weeks we've had some exceptional conversations. Uh, If you want to catch up and haven't had a chance to listen to Ted Adams from IDW or, of course, Kari Andrews talking about his book, Renato Jones from Image. Uh, We just had Susan Eisenberg on, uh, the voice of Wonder Woman for all the the Justice League cartoons and DC animated shows. Uh, May is going to continue. Uh, There are so many people that need to get on now to promote some things they've got coming up in the next couple of days, not just Greg Pak, but uh, others as well. And I don't want to tip any hands until the uh, recordings actually happen, but expect one or two more word balloons this week talking about uh, some big anniversaries and some uh, great uh, returning guests that uh, are going to look back at at a very important project that they did just 20 years ago. Do the math. You might know who I'm talking about. But until I uh, actually have the uh, interviews in hand, uh, I'll just leave it at that. But it's going to be a lot of fun. It's been a great May, and it will continue to be a great May. Uh, We've still got half a month to go, and we're just getting started with some of the great talks we've had lately. Come back to wordballoon.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes, do me a favor and write a review and uh, rate the show because they knocked out a whole bunch of my old reviews and and ratings, and I'd love to get a couple hundred back up there. So if you've done it in the past, could I trouble you to do it again? Or if you're new to the show and like the show, would you? or even if you don't like the show, what if you think I suck? Fine. Put it up on iTunes. That would really be great, and a big help to Word Balloon. Reach me via email with with any questions or comments, uh, john at wordballoon.com. You can follow me at Twitter under my name, uh, at John Word Balloon. Or uh, on Facebook under my name, John Suntress. 
And uh, just thanks. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for letting people know that you like the show and they might like the show too. Keep spreading the word. I should have uh, convention details in the weeks ahead. We're just heading into uh, summer convention season. And uh, I will be out on the road in, uh, in other areas. And there's some neat local Chicago things coming up that I will be at as well. More of that on the episodes to come in the month of May. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2016.